once I knew how to find investments, then I could monetize, you know, a strategy. And I went to his office and he gave me a bonus that was like, you know, a six figure, like, to me, it was like totally life changing. Like I went to my dad, I paid my dad off and my life was never the same. I've been on the verge of bankruptcy. I've, I've gone through really difficult times. And I was, I was speaking at University of Chicago last week and I told the kids, I was like, you grow the most and you gain the most perspective when you have the biggest setbacks. So you gotta be thankful for the setbacks. You gotta be thankful for the bad experiences that happen to you. Because at the end of the day, that's when you grow the most. Hi, my name is Jason Rasnick, the CEO of Benzinga, and welcome to the Raz Report. As always, before we kick things off, I wanna quickly tell you about what Benzinga is. Before I started Benzinga in 2010, there were very few places to get real-time information on financial markets. I thought it was unfair that Wall Street had access to this information before the average Joe investor. So I created Benzinga to level the playing field for you, the retail investor. Benzinga is for the people and by the people. Now, let's dive into the show. All right. Welcome to this week's edition of the Raz Report. Very excited to have an old friend um, on the show. This is actually exciting because... I knew him before he started his company. And I always liked that because a lot of people start companies, don't follow through on them. They say they're going to do it and they don't follow through. That's actually 85%, 90% of people. And this guy fell, followed through, raised money, building a great company, great investors, great properties. It's called Iconic Equities. And the guest we have on today is Tim Bishop. Welcome to the Raz Report. Hey, thanks for having me. See, I, I get in the mode, man. I just get in the mode, you know? I know we're we're just talking. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, Your voice for radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A face for radio. That's right. <laughs> so, can you, Tim? We'll get into your life, but we're going to talk about business first a little bit. So, I know you're in the real estate sector. I remember when you started Iconic Equities. Give us a little brief overview of what you do. Yeah, I mean, so we're an industrial buyer and developer. Um, we're headquartered here in Miami. Uh, we've all got industrial backgrounds. Uh, we worked at some larger development shops, uh, Exeter. I was at Thor Equities. We've had guys from Prologis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the long and short of it. And then we verticalize the various strategies within industrial. We just bought a cold storage asset a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we do industrial outdoor storage. We do light industrial and shallow bay. We do warehouse development. That's more class A and uh, stuff that would be more geared towards like e-commerce, tenancy, Amazon and, you know, Walmart and stuff like that. And then, you know, the full gamut, the class B stuff is just a little bit smaller, more geared towards mom and pop tenancy. Uh, but that stuff uh, is actually kind of the hottest part of industrial uh, just because of the supply and demand imbalance. Um, so we're, we're super focused on the shallow bay front right now. So, I mean, that's all different types. That's cold storage, outdoor, shallow bay. What is shallow bay? So shallow bay is basically like when you, you know, when you look at some of these industrial assets, you know, the it really comes down to the tenant sizes. So the assets in shallow bay are geared towards smaller tenant sizes. So call it sub 10,000 square foot tenants, as opposed to like big box would be like, a 700,000 square foot warehouse that would be like in Atlanta or like South Dallas, that would be more geared towards e-commerce tenancy or Lowe's, Home Depot, you know, kind of the Fortune 500 credit tenancy. Uh, Shallow Bay is at the opposite end of the spectrum. It's smaller tenancy, usually geared towards population growth and servicing population growth. So we're mostly focused on like the population growth markets, like we're headquartered here in Miami. So that's 
kind of where we're mostly focused. And coincidentally, that is probably the best shallow bay market in the country. So uh, how do you, well, how do you become like an expert on all this um, stuff? Like, I'm, like you, so you're doing cold storage, shallow bay, like cold storage. So I'm here in Michigan and there's a company, Lineage Logistics, and I know they do a ton of cold storage. So they need a ton of cold storage. I don't even know how it works. But how do you like know like price per square foot of all these different types? I mean, is industrial just so specific? Because you're, you're not doing apartments. You're doing all industrial? Correct. And you're able to figure out like this is like this market commands this cold storage is this just be like just through years of experience you know it's funny we actually kind of fell into the cold storage niche um and we really only bought one asset so far um uh, we closed on it a few weeks ago and uh it's in miami but we were in you know in the process of just sourcing infill industrial deals and it just happened to be one out of the 40 cold storage assets that are in the market. So when we really, you know, uh, leaned in on just price per square foot and what it costs to replicate this asset. So for a cold storage asset, it would be like $500 a square foot to rebuild that asset. We were like, man, we're buying this thing for like less than half of replacement costs. And that's one of our favorite metrics, um, you know, in acquiring real estate right now, because at the end of the day, cap rates, and interest rates are transient, but your basis and your discount to replacement cost, like that's kind of forever, you know? That's where you really lock in your value is on the buy right now, because I don't have a crystal ball on interest rates, I don't have a crystal ball on cap rates, but I can, you know, reasonably control two things. And that's, you know, my basis and then what yield I'm getting to and by what year. And I can't really control it because obviously leasing can tamper down and the market can soften. But I have a pretty good idea of within a couple of years where I'm going to get to, um, assuming that like the world doesn't, you know, drastically change again. Um, so, you know, obviously our calculator has, um, you know, has subtracted a, quite a bit of value over the last 12 to 18 months of interest rates have ticked up. But to answer your original question, <clears throat> it's more about knowing the market, you know, and what services like what tenant service, which population, um, you know, for. For South Florida, since there's only 40 cold storage assets in the market and it's $500 a square foot to build, chances are there's not a, a lot of new supply and that's going to create upward pressure on rents and ultimately upward pressure on values. So that's that's how we got our arms around it. Would I do cold storage and roll out a full-on vertical across the country and nationalize the strategy? Probably not right now. I'm, I'm more focused on traditional light industrial. Um, you know, it's a larger addressable market. It's easy for us to get our arms around. We really want to build something out that's got enterprise value on the back end, you know, so doing leasing and management, you know, in-house uh, potentially in that strategy and trying to gain a competitive advantage there. Because, you know, whether you're doing cold storage or big box development, it's all about where, excuse me, it's all about where's your competitive advantage and what's your, your talent best geared for. And, well, yeah. Go. Yeah. So, so part of what's, what I find very interesting with you is I met you before you started iconic. You said you were going to start this thing and this idea for industrial, but also you're, you're very networked. You're you, you know, a lot of people you're, maybe it's your likable guy or maybe you're not likable and people just like to hang with you. I don't know. I'm just kidding. But you're a likable guy and you're, you're very networked. Does your network help you? in finding deals or is it how i guess how do you go about finding deals um it's a good question and what i will say is like 
<clears throat> a little bit about my background, and I think that's a good segue, is I, you know, there's certain kids that come out and, you know, go Ivy League and then do banking and then private equity and then start their own real estate fund. I was at the opposite end of that spectrum. I did not have that kind of trajectory. I had a bunch of career failure in the beginning. Like I came out of college, you know, barely graduated. I went to a pretty good school, Loyola, Maryland. Um, but I didn't, you know, I had like a liberal arts education. I didn't have the technical skills out of the gate. You know, it's not like I studied accounting or finance or something like that. So it's definitely behind the eight ball as far as that goes. Um, I did not have the technical skills. I was pretty, pretty good on the networking side of things. Um, and, you know, look, a lot of people go back and get their MBA uh, just for the networking or just for, you know, the technical skills. So I kind of, you know, had to figure it out on the fly and it led to a bunch of career failure in the beginning, uh, which was ultimately the best thing that could have happened to me. So, yeah, I mean, my first job, I was like doing, you know, like social media marketing, you know. And then I was working in Merrill Lynch, making $12 an hour, cold calling. And then, you know. How I, long did you last there doing that? Uh, five months. I didn't set up one meeting. <laughs> Not one? Then, then, then they hired, then they, they I, I became a financial advisor and didn't bring in one client. They fired me too. Um, so so wait, five, I, wait, five months, hold on. Five months of cold calls. And then what'd you say? And then you. I didn't financial. set up one meeting. And then I, I didn't, um, I didn't bring in one client. And it's not, I just, I just didn't know how to sell. I, I, I just, you know, and I didn't have the technical skills, you know, a lot of kids, you know, come out of school, uh, go the analyst route, know how to underwrite. And they're like equipped to work and be a meaningful member of the workforce. Um, you know, whether it's in real estate, finance, private equity, venture. Um, I was not that, you know, I was just like kind of a personable guy. So I figured like that was a pretty good route to go because I did want to get into finance. I did want to get into real estate. So I was really in finance sales, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I just, you know, wasn't very good at it. I passed the tests, but, um, you know, you, like I was like 25 years old at the time. Like who's going to invest with you? You know, like what's your advantage in the marketplace? Like what's right. your investment thesis? I didn't have an investment thesis. At the end of the day, Merrill Lynch is like, okay, invest in the S&P and we'll take 1%. You know, like that's not an investment thesis. Nobody finds that to be a compelling strategy. So what was next after Merrill Lynch? That's after Merrill Lynch. Uh, I worked at a real estate tax firm, um, and in Miami. Yeah, because I wanted to get into real estate, but like I didn't really know how to go about. Like I didn't have any sort of you know analyst skills or anything like that. So this is like a sales role, but I knew that it was like a step into real estate. Yep. So you know, I was like 25, 26 at the time. And after like six or nine months, I used it kind of as a launching pad to get an actual job in real estate acquisitions. Okay. Working for a guy that, you know, uh, did a lot of like non-institutional deals, you know, acquiring like, he's doing like high street retail and Wynwood and stuff like that. Um, he actually did pretty well. Um, but by the time I got there, it was kind of a challenging part of the market and he was kind of shifting strategies like from, you know, retail, which was doing incredibly well in emerging neighborhoods. I don't know if people remember six, seven, eight years ago, like that was the hottest thing. Like, where's the next Williamsburg? Where's the next Wynwood? Where's the next, um, you know, uh, East Austin? So that was, you know, kind of as strategies were shifting. And I only found like one 
small deal for him. And he was like, this isn't going to work. And he was like, you should become a residential real estate broker. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, I mean, look, residential real, like a lot of people do very well in that, but like, I wanted to be in commercial real estate and this guy like just dropped the ultimate insult on me. Like, Hey, you're just like not good enough or just not cut out for this. Like, I don't know which, but you should, you know, consider something else, you know, that you're better suited for. So at that point, I was like, all right, I'm going to go and uh, go and get my MBA. And uh, in the in the meantime, I'll apply for schools and I mean, I, I'll, I'll apply for jobs and see if I can land like a, you know, a junior acquisitions role. It was like 26, maybe 27 at the time, probably 26. And I was applying for jobs left and right. And at the time, by the way, like I had no more money. Like my, my credit cards were maxed out and, um, you know, I, this guy wasn't really paying me that much. And he, um, you know, like I, it was like the end of the road for me. I was going to move home, leave Miami. Like things just didn't really work out. I'm going to go back to the drawing board, go back to school and actually develop technical skills. Maybe, you know, try and get in like one of the New York schools, NYU, one of those. And, you know, uh, try and, you know, figure it out, but ultimately move home. And I, at the time was just networking with people that like I knew did well in real estate. And there was a guy named Scott Sherman who, um, you know, worked at this big company in New York called Thor equities. And he started his own, you know, shop. And at the time he was like mentoring me a little bit, trying you to start, wait, he started his own shop at Thor or another one. No, he left Thor and okay, started his own company called Tricera. Okay. So he was like a year or two into this new venture. And I like really looked up to him and he was like trying to help me get a job. Like he wasn't really, you know, but I wasn't really that hireable because I just didn't have the technical skills. Um, you know, like, when you're sourcing investment opportunities for folks, like you should be pretty seasoned, you know, like the folks that I try to hire or work with, like at this, at this stage, you know, like you really want them to have really strong technical skills, really strong, you know, sourcing abilities where they can value real estate, like almost to the hundred thousand dollar. Um, yep. So, you know, at the time I didn't have that. So this guy was helping me find a job and he just so happened to be meeting his old boss and his old boss, who's a real estate legend, who I only would see in like the real deal, you know, named Joe Sitt, was like, oh, do you have anybody in Miami that could source deals for me? Because he did it incredibly well for, for Joe and, um, you know, Scott, he made him a lot of money. Yep. Scott Sherman. For, yeah. He was looking for somebody like that. And, um, you know, out of nowhere, I get a call from like Thor's HR department and, you know, they were like, Hey, like, uh, you know, we came across your resume, you know, we came across you or whatever. And, you know, uh, Joe sit wants to meet you in like 45 minutes. And I was like the guy in the real deal, like the guy that's like, you know, owns like billions and billions of dollars of real estate wants to meet me like in 45 minutes. I met him in Brickle, you know, like I, I left the office and I was like, this is crazy. Because, uh, you know, he's like one of those pillars in the real estate community. You know, he's, he's a pretty big name. So I was a little starstruck. Um, and, you know, at the time, like, he was like, you know, what neighborhoods would you focus on? I really want to buy in Miami and this and that. And 
um, you know, he hired me like a couple weeks later and it changed my life forever. Did you, did you like go to lunch with him? Like how this happened? Yeah, we went to lunch, uh, at Brickle city center. His friend owned one of the restaurants and, uh, actually, you know, I met the guy coincidentally a couple years later, he owns Cantina La Diente and a few okay. others. Uh, they were partners on Joe's like Mexican operation on some F and B stuff, but yeah, he hired me. And then, you know, that's one thing, like I got hired. Now I, I get this, this chance to work there. And I get there and it's all like Ivy League educated, like Cal Berkeley, like everybody's like really sharp, you know, like New York talent, like solid, you know, and I was definitely, um, you know, behind the curve a little bit because uh, I need to now develop the technical skills, learn how to work at this company and then actually succeed and produce and bring deals in the door. So in the first six months, I didn't know which way it was going to go. Like I was like. You know, it's probably not going to work out for me. I'm going to wind up like going and get my MBA. And then somewhere along the way, like I had a couple people mentor me at Thor that were like, you know, just guiding me like, hey, you should go to this market and check, check out Austin, Texas. You should go check out Nashville. You should, you should get on a plane. And I was like, you know what, if I just get on a plane like every week and go hunt for deals, like, and just out hustle people, like chances are this is going to work out. And it started to like in my first, my first year, you know, and by the way, like when my credit cards were maxed out, I should say my dad, um, was going through a divorce from my mom and took out a loan against his 401k because he didn't have any money and paid off my credit cards. And after that first year working for Joe, I walked into his office and we, I, I found two deals. They were like 90 million total. It's like, you know, pretty good year uh, for someone, you know, that didn't have much of a resume before that. And I went into his office and he gave me a bonus that was like, you know, you know, a six figure, like to me, it was like totally life changing. Like I yeah. went to my dad, I paid my dad off and my life was never the same. Cause once I knew how to find investments, then, you know, I could monetize, um, you know, a strategy and that kind of like set this trajectory in motion of like, okay, if he, if he trusted me to invest in me, then, you know, others will as well, as long as, you know, I'm rigorous in my underwriting and rigorous in my, you know, my diligence, um, you know, I can translate this into something. And the next couple of years we did extremely well on the deals that I found him. Um, he, you know, he was pretty satisfied. So it was tough to leave, you know, after. Well, th well that's what I was going to say. Like it's <clears throat> Scott Sherman used to be there as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you were that there and then you, you left after how many years? Almost four, like three and a half. And so you said it was tough to leave because why was it tough to leave versus going to do your own thing? You know, it's always tough to do something entrepreneurial, you know, especially when you're, you know, making good money, working at a big company, working for a legend. Um, and he's a very, very likable guy. You know, I, I was hanging out with him a few months ago in Miami. Like, he's a lot of fun. Um, I'm friends with his whole family. You know, they're really good people. Um, you know, he's Syrian. So I'm friends with a lot of the Syrian guys that are all in real estate. Um, so, yeah, it was tough. But... You know, and same thing with Scott, like it gets to a point where you get that entrepreneurial itch and you're like, I feel like I could turn this into something. I could parlay this into something like, you know, it's almost like you're, you're, you're betting on yourself at the top, 
you know, I just did really well and now I want to parlay it into something. And at that point, you know, in those few years that I was there, it was a short period of time, but you, I learned so much. I learned. Yeah. It, but what I guess I wonder a little bit is um, you learn so much, you learn how to value a deal. You found deals, you close deals, um, but you get that itch to go on your own. Um, and you were working for a legend. He, he has a great company. Is it ever like a conversation like, all right, you know, maybe like, so there's a guy, um, Citadel, it's a big hedge fund or not. Citadel, there's another one, Cubs, um, Julian Robertson. They, he was a hedge fund and then people left there and started their own hedge funds and they, they were called Cubs. So Julian would become the biggest investor in the, like, I don't know. I just don't know. It's because it, it is when you're working with a likable guy, he taught you so much. I mean, that makes it even that much harder to leave and do your own thing. Um, so I guess like you go have that conversation and then, you know, it's just like you want to go do your own thing, basically. Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's a family business, you know, at the end of the day. And sometimes, you know, at the, at the family businesses, you know, yep, it, it, it's tough, you know, um, you know, it's not like I have like a ton of equity in the deals like, you know, it was um, you you were well compensated, but, you know, I wanted to start a company where like everybody had a vested interest, uh, you know, on fees and promotes and carry and stuff like that. And, um, you know, and that, it wasn't really like as much monetary uh, of a consideration. It was more like, you know, I want to start something where I can have more of an impact out there. You know, I feel like I can parlay this into something and not to sound cheesy, but like, you know, create a platform where, you know, I, I can not only attract a pretty strong investor base, but, you know, at the time, like I had this kid that was like shadowing me and I was teaching him real estate. And before that, you know, he was like working at a hedge fund doing like sales. So he was a pretty reasonably intelligent kid. And I was like seeing like how much this kid was growing you know, just by like having conversations with me, and then he was regurgitating it. And it was like institutional investor appetite towards certain, you know, strategies within industrial. And all of a sudden I'm like, I could put this kid in the room with like an LP right now. I could put this kid in the room with a broker. So I started to see that I was having this impact on somebody. And that to me, you know, like, look, money is a very, um, you know, it's a transient thing. It can come and go, but like the impact and your legacy, you know, is something that can last much longer. So, um, you know, having an impact on other people is probably a big motivator for me, um, you know, young folks. So like recently I've been speaking at a couple different universities and like, it's the best feeling ever. You know, I spoke at, you know, Harvard a few months ago and then I ended up hiring a girl that's, that's interning for me now. And, you know, she goes to a liberal arts school. So like, similar situation. I know it's Harvard, but like they don't teach you real estate and finance there. And she's growing and learning so much so quickly. Uh, and to think that like one day you, you, you have a Harvard intern. I do. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd have a Harvard intern? That's pretty cool. No, you're right. I mean, there's, I, I could say 20 things that I never thought I would have that I have right now. I mean, think about that. What's one more thing. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I'll give you one more thing. You said the I'm putting you on oh, the spot. You, one, what's one more thing? I, you said the Harvard. You never thought you would have a Harvard intern. Mm -hmm. And then what's one more thing that you never thought? Like I probably never thought that I have a company. I'd never have like institutional investors. I never thought that like I mean, think about yeah. where I started. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. You were working. I was trying um, to declare bankruptcy not too long ago and figure that out and just get my first job. Then it was like. I mean, you were making cold calls at Merrill, didn't uh, one deal, social media. Now you have your own company, a sweet name, Iconic Equities Group. I love the name Iconic. Um, that was like ha- having me at hello. So we're going to fast forward. Well, I guess we did fast forward, but I, you're you're doing, you're like actively still doing deals right now. I, I, I've been told the real estate market is not maybe at a standstill, but pretty slow because of the high interest rate environment. How do you combat that? Yeah, I mean, look, in real estate, like John Gray was saying from Blackstone, there's haves and there's have-nots, okay? There's a total standstill, you know, on demand and valuations on office, you know, obviously. Like, that is getting crushed right now. Uh, It's not financeable. It's very tough. I was in somebody's office yesterday that was like, you know, an institutional investor, and they were saying that they they actually are, are kind of like a hybrid it's private capital, but they operate like in an institutional capacity. So they'll go to their network of, of high net worths and then they'll, you know, allocate the deals. And they were telling me that they were going to buy a deal that was a nine and a half cap uh, and a 14 cash on cash and they couldn't raise the money for it. And that just basically tells me that no matter how good the returns are, no matter how good the asset is, office is just like impossible right now. Retail, similarly challenged, uh, but I do, you know, anecdotally have friends, you know, I was in Sterling organization's office the other day. They told me they're, uh, you know, they're a big grocery anchored retail buyer. Uh, I was with my buddy whose family owns Gator Investments, uh, which is a big retail buyer as well yesterday. They were telling me that their portfolios are holding up very well, especially the grocery anchored stuff um, and the stuff that's more F&B or um, experiential in nature, um, you know, that, that can't be affected by e-commerce. Uh, multifamily is challenged, I think, because a basis, you know, and that's my biggest focus right now is, is basis and getting to positive leverage. So, you know, and what I mean by that is like, in order for me to buy a deal right now, like I need to be going in at an okay cap rate, but I need to be getting to a stabilized cap rate by year two or year three, that's over neutral leverage. Your borrowing rates all in are like 7% right now. So I better be getting to like, you know, seven and a half or eight by year two and be in positive leverage territory so that there's that arbitrage between debt and equity, because that's why multi was so challenged is that a lot of folks bought at like three and four caps thinking they were going to take it to a five and a half or a six. And then all of a sudden, you know, the rents went backwards and the debt is now like a six and a half or a seven maybe even higher so there's no way out on on some of those multi-assets and honestly like uh to clarify like there there will be some i mean look everybody says like industrials the darling child of commercial real estate right now and and i think that it is and obviously anything can change you know at the end of the day at one point uh shopping malls were the lowest cap rate biggest investments in the world and now they're deemed archaic and very troublesome. It, industrial so big because of the shipping needs for the Amazons of the world and just last mile shipping? Is that why industrial is so big or why? No, it's a combination of a few factors for sure. Um, you know, and I can start on, you know, from a demand perspective, you know, onshoring, kind of separating ourselves, you know, our dependency on, on other countries, import exports like China. Uh, that leads to a lot of new manufacturing in the United States, whether that's EV or, uh, 
you know, Intel doing a new chip plant, um, that stuff is creating jobs and it's creating a lot of leasing momentum in the industrial sector. Step further, I would say, is just e-commerce. Obviously, during COVID, e-commerce was the big driver of industrial space. Amazon was gobbling up square yep. all over the country. And then when they go and give back 0.01% of their space or whatever it came to be, uh, people thought there were blood in the streets and it just wasn't the reality. Uh, it was just headlines. So, um, you know, but I will say that the stuff that has pulled back, uh, yeah, it is e-commerce oriented, but more so big box oriented. You know, when you head into a recession, people are very cognizant of how much space they're taking up and what their occupancy costs are. And what I would say is, you know, why we love, you know, the momentum on the industrial side is because occupancy costs are just a fraction of what the overall, uh, you know, um, supply chain costs are for the tenant, you know, like their real estate, their real estate's like 5% or something. Transportation's like 60 labors, you know, whatever the breakdown is. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I probably should. Um, but it tells me that there's, 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 you know, if you can buy very well located real estate and you push rents, um, you know, it's not as impactful because they're saving money on transportation, labor, gas, all that stuff. Um, if they're in a better location, that's closer proximity to the population, because that's typically who they're serving. And then a step further and why I focus on South Florida and the population growth markets in the Sun Belt is because that's what drives, you know, rooftops and population increases. That's what drives consumer demand on the smaller spaces, which is what I was alluding to earlier. That's the segment of industrial that's done extremely well. And there's very little new supply. And at the end of the day, real estate's a supply and demand. Why is there new, so little new supply in it? In that space? So the smaller you go, the more expensive it is to build. So it's just like, it, it won't pencil. You know, when you get like 50,000 square feet, 100,000, you know, 30,000 square feet, uh, it's so expensive to build that it just won't pencil. So there's no new supply coming online. And when there's no new supply coming online in a certain, you know, real estate category, it creates upward pressure on rents because the tenants have nowhere else to go. And it creates upward pressure on valuations. So that's why we like that strategy. How many properties do you guys have? You know, I actually, we've had, so we've had four exits to institutional capital. Um, Shut up. Wait, no, no, no. You have not had four exits. I mean, I haven't like exited my platform. I've had like four real estate exits. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. Four real estate exits. Wait, dude, how long have you been doing this for? Uh, three years? Three years? No, two, 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 a little, almost two and yeah, a half that's, years. That's what I'm saying. So how have well, you had? Yeah. What? I explain a couple of them. So they, they I mean, were, you don't have to go, you don't have to you can be very broad. Like you don't have to, yeah. well, look, what I'm, what I'm trying to understand is if, if, if you invested a million dollars in a deal, yeah. do you get paid on that and you made money on it? Um, yeah. I mean, look, a lot of the deals that I do, um, are like, you know, 95, five. So I'll come up with like a few percent of the equity and I'll have an institutional investor put in most of the equity. And then, you know, we'll run the deal from A to Z and, you know, garner sweat equity, you know, economics on the back end when we go and sell it. So we'll charge fees and promotes, which is, you know, pretty market uh, for taking on institutional capital. Um, so yeah, you, you might put up like, you know, that's the thing like, you know, I'm not putting up a ton of money, but we're doing all the work. So that's why we're able to make multiples on, you know, our money because we're not putting up that much. 
And that's kind of how it has to be in the beginning. You know, I started the company with like $200,000 and, you know, I'm only like now after these exits, having liquidity to hire like really top tier talent. So it does take time to make money um, because the fees are just not that much. Uh, it's really those, those exits. So the four exits have allowed you to be able to grow the company, hire people. Now, do you still have properties in your portfolio? I know you do, but yeah, like... yeah, yeah. Especially on some of the newer, like we just bought a couple assets. One that was like 30 million, one that was like, like 13 or 14, um, you know, with institutional capital and, you know, just the values and the cap rates have gone up. Um, you know, those two deals, like the first one we bought it, like, you know, you know, high sevens and we were getting debt in the high five. So, um, you know, it was pretty creative. The second one we bought all cash. So, you know, and, and a lot of you bought a $13 million all cash, uh, 30, almost 30. Oh, the third well, you bought that one all cash. You yeah. Didn't do any yeah we'll put that on it eventually, but you know, on some of these assets, you kind of have a decision to make whether it makes sense to put financing on it or not. Um, you know, it's one of those situations where sometimes in this environment, it makes sense to, to wait a little bit when there's some value add or some sort of business plan has been executed on. Um, but, but Tim, what you, what you have done in, well, it's not a short amount of time, but you know, cause you've worked at other pl places before, but in a short amount of time, Tim, you have, um, gained the trust of investors to put up 30 million in cash to buy a property. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, cause that wasn't, un that wasn't underwritten by a bank. I mean, because sometimes when investors invest, they're like, okay, well we have the assurance that there's debt on it. The bank did the underwrite. You're saying in that scenario, there's no debt. So, yeah. I mean, that's confident. That's confidence in you and your team, I guess, is what I'm. Yeah, in the deal for sure. Um, but we've we've got a really good team, and that I mean, look, that's the biggest part about growing a company is how talented are you, and how I've noticed like there to be just such a correlation is like the the quality of talent that you uh, you get what you pay for at the end of the day. That's what I what I. I and I have, I give away a significant amount of upside in my deals to the guys that work on the deals so that they're highly incentivized from the day that they source the deal to the day that they, you know, work on it or develop it or asset management. Like everybody that works on a deal at my company takes part in the profits, of, you know, when we go to exit. And I think that that's important for investors to hear because anybody can source a deal and, you know, whatever happens, happens. But when there's a bunch of folks working together and have a vested interest in the success yep. of that exit, you know, it's like it's like when you, you know, uh, group Benzinga, I'm sure there's people that you gave equity to yep. or, um, you know, and, and those guys totally. work very hard, you know. Yeah, totally incentivized. Too. So how many people do you have now? And right now we're keeping it pretty tight. You know, it's like five people. We're That's great. No, but that... But in, in I this know, environment, that's what you need. <laughs> no, but but by, by the way, you're high quality. Like, I know, but I I know a um, a, a REIT, a public REIT. Yeah, they're big, big, big billions. Okay, billions. They do the um, casino, the financing for the properties. Their whole company is probably like under forty people, and they're bill billions because you can have once, a good amount of stuff. Yeah, and but, but also, yeah. I mean, you don't have. You're not doing the maintenance on the building. I mean, you're not, I mean, you haven't, you could outsource that. Like you're not having internal property managers going in. I mean, you're not having people go in and fix, you know, I don't know, the water supply. 
but but have you what is like your um what's the one like horror story like that you like you bought a property and like this thing fell apart any of these things like where you had to put out a fire right away and it was just like total yeah, mess just delays with the cities you know that's that's always challenging because you're trying to get a project done and you know you're trying to um you know you like when, when you go and buy a property you lay out a timeline for your investor like hey we're gonna get, yep. get this done in x amount of time and then there's certain things that are just beyond your control you know and at the end of the day you have to be able to live with things that are beyond your control like the market shifting or the city not responding to you in a timely fashion and just say to yourself and say to your investor, Hey, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. You know, like, it's not like we're, you, you can't, you can't ding us for effort here. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just uh, certain things like that. Um, yeah. Just project delays, you know, stuff like that. Yep. Uh, that, that, that's always the most disappointing. So that, because so that, but, that's my big, that's your biggest thing. Like, are you on time? Or are you on budget? You know? And, uh, over time, you get better at being on time and on budget, but you know, you need so, so the one that you have the thirty million dollars you bought for cash now, are you looking at bank financing? Or are you do you want to wait till interest rates fall? Like, how would you look at that one? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know it's a combination of executing on a business plan and you know getting it to an attractive, stabilized yield, but also um, you know at some point. You know, I don't think interest rates are going to be, you know, north of seven forever. So at some point, there's going to be a more creative financing solution, you know, hopefully in the next few years. So TBD on that one, the stuff we're looking at right now. I mean, look, a lot of these deals, you know, in this environment makes sense to go all cash, you know, and I'll tell you why, because, you know, you don't love negative leverage. You don't love buying something at a five cap and putting seven percent financing on it unless there is a very, very clear path to getting it north of seven cap uh, or, you know, an eight cap. So that's something that we always think about, especially on the new deals. You know, what we're doing right now is we've only uh, partnered with larger institutional investors. And I think we're going to, you know, there's going to be the year that we start to diversify our capital sources and open our deals up to family offices and private capital. Um, you know, and I think it's the right thing to do. Like we shouldn't be totally dependent on groups that only want to do big deals, you know, because in this kind of environment, like the outsized yields and the best deals seem to be the smaller ones, um, you know, because there's less eyes on them. There's less low cost of capital groups that are buying them, you know? So what we're trying to do is aggregate a portfolio of them and then sell them to like a Blackstone or a Brookfield or you know, someone that's got a lower cost of capital than us. So pull it together, maybe with some family offices, a, a series of smaller assets, and then sell to a larger check writer who's got a lower cost of capital that we can get enhanced returns from. Got it. Makes sense. What's the hardest thing you have to do for your business? Um, man, that's a really... It's a really good question. That'll make you think. Hardest thing that I have to do, you know, it's managing people, you know, it's like I transitioned from like being a deal guy to like a guy that now owns a company. And I think that that's the biggest thing is, is knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Knowing what you don't know is so important because when you go from, look, 
I think when you, you know, when you started your company, you were probably very good at like one or two things and then like, okay. And you know, at a bunch of other things that you're going to need to hire people for. And that's how I kind of looked at it. Like I got a deal background and I can raise capital, but I cannot execute. I did not have this crazy uh, construction background or development background, you know, where I could, you know, bit stuff out with GCs and do all this, you know, the super technical yep. stuff. So I had to hire for that and sell for it over time as my liquidity increased. Um, so I would say it's just, you know, going from, you know, having this, this being a one track pony or one trick pony to now like running a company where you have to be cognizant of execution, managing po folks, managing capital, um, and managing outreach because that's a big part of it. You know, it's, it's really like bringing the deals as a sales role. So setting up the standard operating procedures for that. Um, and thank God I have a really good deal sourcing background. Um, so we have a very rigorous acquisition and outreach strategy uh, that's always caused us to be attractive to, you know, really competitive capital sources because we've, we've got good deals, you know. So when you made these hires, was it all word of mouth or did you put job ads up? I put job ads up, you know. Yeah, on LinkedIn. They work? Yeah, it did. On LinkedIn and then select leaders. Yeah. Select leaders? I don't know that one. That's it's another like job site. It's a specific job board. Yeah. Um, I, Is it real I, estate focused or just leaders in general? Uh, it's just real estate focused. It's called select leaders. It's good yeah. for, yeah, just real estate specific roles. Uh, there's good talent on there. But LinkedIn is, is, is great, you know? Yeah. Microsoft got that for a steal when they LinkedIn, if they would have kept that. Microsoft is in M&A yeah. mode right now. They just bought Activision. Yeah. And they bought LinkedIn way, I mean, like six, four years ago. And they got a, that's when I should have bought Microsoft stock. So I did ask you about interest rates and you said you gave a reason, but like if interest, let's just pretend interest rates stay at this high rate for the next two years. Okay. Yep. I understand because of cap rates or the value, but over time, so let's say rates fall again in two years. Okay. Let's just say two years, your deals start to become way more valuable. Like my, my, I guess my feeling is interest rates are higher. So if you don't have access to cash and you need bank loans, you have to need bank loans. You're not buying right now. And so I feel like it would open opportunities for people that can buy like a Blackstone, like a you, uh, am I right on that? Because, um, that's my thinking. I just don't know if that's true. Yeah. I mean, look, like the guys that killed it the most were the ones that were buying in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, That's true. You know, That's true. We see it as a generational buying opportunity right now. Um, you know, the bar is very high for us right now, I would say. Like it needs to be totally outsized deal, totally Got it. abnormal returns than what we were seeing on the same assets six to 12 months ago and even a month ago, you know. Once, once people, you know, I'd say the last Fed meeting when, when folks came to the conclusion that rates were going to be higher for longer, um, that's when we started to see another drop in values um, and we started to adjust our underwriting. And, you know, that's just kind of the, it's not like, you know, we're trying to go out there and, and, and steal stuff, you know, from unsophisticated sellers. Like we're just paying a market clearing price in real time. And you know, just like everybody else. But I think at the end of the day, like you said, if you've got, you know, creative capital solutions, 
where you can be active, you know, yep. in the next couple of years, quote unquote, probably at the bottom. And what I say is like, look, I can't time the bottom, but you know, if we're buying stuff that's 20 to 30% off, you know, from the peaks, like industrial is only going to fall so much, especially when yep. the demand hasn't come down, you know, I mean, where people are seeing office like 50, 60, 70% discount for, you know, it, it's a different world. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's still a little bit of a falling knife. Like if, if we start to see a big uptick in vacancy, like I think if, if all of the square footage that goes, you know, that's under construction right now goes unleased in industrial, we're at like 5% vacant nationally. So think about that. You know, and that's a healthy vacancy rate. No, that's crazy. That means that you you you're set up for a long term successful story here with where the market is. It's not like office where <clears throat> people want to work from home. Industrial, you need the space. You need the space like that. You just absolutely need the space. Wait, there was wait, there was two more quick questions. What was okay? I had um, what what was your worst or your first job? I'll switch to that and then I'll see if I remember the other one. Your worst or your first job? Oh my god! It's a question we ask on every podcast. This is really funny. It's either your worst or your first. And by the way, it was just Tim Bishop with Iconic Equities Group. So something that I neglected to tell you, okay, was before I landed, got the job at Merrill Lynch, I had just moved to South Florida and I took a job. Or no, I didn't take a job. I interviewed for a job. it, It wasn't working for Nick, was it? It was not working for Nick Smith. No, I hadn't met Nick till a few years later. I interviewed for a job and it was like B2B like sales. Okay. It was very, very vague. Okay. I go in, everybody's in suits and ties. So I was like, wow, this is a pretty sharp shop. And they're, they're like, yeah, you know, it's B2B sales. Like, you know, and, and I don't know any of this stuff. I just graduated college like a few, like six months ago. So I don't, I, I didn't know any of the lingo. Like I took a marketing class. Like I, you know, had a liberal arts background. Basically I go in and it's like rigorous interview, like, like process. It's like two, three rounds. I'm like telling my dad, I'm like, man, I'm showing up for with a suit every day. It's like two to three rounds of interviews. Like this is a pretty serious job. You know, it's, it's salary and commission. It's like got health benefits. Like it's the real thing. And when you're like just coming out of college and you're not like recruited by Bain and Goldman Sachs, like you have no idea like what's legit and what's not. So they were like, okay, it's the third interview. And now you're going to shadow people for a day. And I go in. I think I know where this is going. I go in and shadow them. And we're selling. I don't know if we can curse on the, on the show, but we're selling. You can, you can, you can, you can sell. We're selling fucking paper door to door. All right. We're selling like office supplies door to door. I was so mortified and I just could not do it. Like, I mean, we were going to like law firm, like, hey, you guys need paper? Hey, you need, and that was my day. I, I called, like, by the way, like right before this, they basically told me I had the job and I, this was kind of the first day. I called my dad and I was like, dad, I got the job. And my dad was like crying on the phone and was like, I'm so proud of you. Like, you know, I would have been proud of you even if you didn't get the job. And I, you know, is like one of those moments, like my dad's kind of sick now and like, uh, it's one of those moments that I look down on and I'm like, wow, like, you know, like you really didn't know what you don't know. And, you know, it, it's like comical, like how far I've come since that moment. But I love that I have those experiences um, because it just makes it that much sweeter when things go well. You know, I have perspective, you know, because 
I've been on the verge of bankruptcy. I've, I've gone through really difficult times. And I was, I was speaking at university of Chicago last week. Um, and I told the kids, I was like, you grow the most and you gain the most perspective when you have the biggest setbacks. So you gotta be thankful for the setbacks. You gotta be thankful for the bad experiences that happen to you because at the end of the day, that's when you grow the most. So I'm happy that I almost sold paper door to door. You know, I'm proud that I was making $12 an hour at Merrill Lynch because you know what, uh, you know, I, I wound up in a good place, you know, eventually, and I needed to experience all those setbacks. You know, how embarrassed were you when you went into those offices? I can't even explain to you how tight my stomach was and how mortified I was. People were like, get the hell out of my office. Like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, I was like, what are we? I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how does this girl do okay. every day? All right. So I just have to interject myself into this one. I was one summer. I'm trying to get a job over the summer. See an ad in the paper. I go for the interviews. It's guy in the office doing the interview. And he's he, he like, yeah, we're, you just, you're like, does the same kind of thing. Um, you know, same kind of interview process. So I go with this guy. He has a bag of basically shit. Okay. Like a bag of like tchotchkes, like hairspray and, or like just random shit. Okay. So we go out, we drive, I drive with him. We go to some area because he goes, Oh yeah, you're a quick. So I said to the guy, I want to be your top salesperson. I didn't know what it was. So we go and knock on like, like, like we went literally to like a manicure salon and like they went somewhere else and like this a retail store. Sales, just, baby. And it would say, wait, hold on. It would say, it'd be sales. Yes. It would say no solicitors. So on the, the sticker thing, I'll never forget this guy. He said, no solicitors. He knocks on the door, goes in there. And the lady's like, she said, no solicitors. And he goes, oh, I thought it said no Sicilians. Yeah. And the lady thought it was so funny. And so then she like bought for him. him. It was the most embarrassing thing ever. We were walking on the street with a bag. I swear. By the way, one I, will, day. I, I will say, like, if you can sell there, you know, it's like, yeah. go hang out in the Diamond District, and I promise you, you can raise capital or, you know, yeah, yeah. Acquire, well, acquire, acquire real estate. Because if you can do that, like, you are a salesman, my friend. Like, you can well, sell, you can raise, you can do anything. Howard Schultz, founder of Starbucks, you know, he sold copiers door to door for two years. I read it in his book and I agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, you're always selling. You're always selling. Like I met you randomly with another friend. I guess I'm, we're, we're selling each other like, hey, I'm a friendly person. Like that's what well, you're always selling in some way. But yeah, that door to door, like, you know, I, I mean, oh my God, you went through that. Now you did mention your dad and he was just so proud of you got this, the, the, that role, which I know, you know, in hindsight, the role is, you know, you're looking back now, you get to laugh at it. What is your, what are your parents or what is your dad? meant to your career, your life, and where you're at today? It's a really good question. So, um, yeah, so, you know, my dad, upper middle class kind of guy, works in corporate finance, um, you know, always like, like not an entrepreneurial guy, but more like, you know, a corporate guy, um, but super self-sacrificing. I mean, as you could tell, when he bailed me out, like he didn't even have the money to take a loan out from his 401k. And that's not because he didn't do well financially. It was because he paid for all of us to go to like private schools, which was like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, in, in student loans and all that. Um, so, I yeah, I mean, he's always been there for me. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I found out he's got like lung disease 
And, you know, that's been tough because I don't know, I've never really dealt with like illness in the family and, you know, it's pretty serious. And, um, you know, I'm trying to like do as much stuff with him as possible. Um, you know, I think it'd be all right. It could be a 10, 20 year thing. It could be a couple, you know, you have no, anybody can get hit crossing the, crossing the street today, you know? So you can't really focus on, on, you know, you really got to live in the day. And so I've been going all these cool sporting events. I know you would like this. So last week, I take him out to Notre Dame. We're huge Notre Dame fans, by the way. You ever see the movie Rudy? Of course, of course. Okay. It's like my my it's my life. I love it. I met the real Rudy when when the when the movie came out. I only saw it once at the time. It was when I was leaving golf camp. I was 16 years old, and the guy went into Blimpy to get subs, and we were in the van on the way to the airport. And the guy goes, "You know that's the real Rudy in the car." I'm like, "No, it's not." And then he like shows me the photos and the book. So I met the real Rudy when I was like 16. I, lo- I love Rudy. I'm an, under, I'm an underdog. I relate to the underdog story. Uh, love Notre Dame. Went out to a game. My dad hadn't been there in 20 years, probably. Um, and they ended up uh, upsetting uh, USC. I bought bought him some seats. They were, you know, amazing. They're super. When he walked in the thing and saw the field, did he have the same reaction as that it, father? It like... was like it was the most beautiful sight these eyes have ever seen. Yeah, that's what. There you go. Thank my you. Dad, yeah, when he sat down, my dad was like on the verge of tears. By the way, he was like, "He's amazing. Thank you so much." So that, that's an iconic movie line, iconic, and that's what your dad. Yeah. And, and by the way, then they they smoke USC and we storm the field. Oh, shut up. Really? Oh, that's fucking awesome. Dad's got lung disease. I have a video of him running down the field. Fuck you. That's amazing. I'm I'm loving the swearing, but that is freaking amazing. By the way, we go home, and he almost starts crying, and he's like, it's one of the best nights of my life. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, how cool is my life at this point? Like, No, that's and that's what this is about, man. You know, like you mentioned my sports, but this isn't about. Look at the experience you had your dad. Now, look how many more experiences you're going to have with your dad. Like, that's what this is about. Like, this is about that. It's not about, well, you to me. you games with your kids, you know. it's That's, to me, it, that's exactly what it's about, man. You 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 just told the story about, you know, at the game and tears. But then he goes home and looks at the greatest day of my life. Like, that's. That's what this that's what this is about to me. Like that's you know, I don't post all of my stuff to Instagram. I know I post some, but uh decent amount, but I, I love looking back at the stuff. I'm the guy the stuff I get the the alerts from four years ago, five years ago and share it because that's what this stuff is about. And I think of experiences and um yes, you want to work and do well and be nice to people and enjoy you, you know, but like I'm not out there clubbing and spending money that way and buying bottles. Like I, I, I'm not saying it's not, you don't, don't, shouldn't go to clubs ever. I'm just saying to me, like having those wholesome experiences like you have with your dad, like that Notre Dame, like that is awesome. And you ran and then, then you, it's like you, it's like you wrote a movie script. It's like you did. They, you ran in the field. They, I mean, the, you know, in the beginning when they were like, this is the last player that's ever been carried out. They almost carried, he almost had to get carried out. There you I was go. Worried about him getting out of there. There's like thirty thousand people on the field. I was like, this guy's got lung disease. What if he just kills, kills over? I'm like, this is nuts. This is gonna be a bad. This is gonna be an interesting way to end. I mean, you have to keep yeah. him out. Yeah, that's it. No, but that's what it's about, Tim. And that's you know, you've taken the entrepreneurial, you know, the entrepreneurial road. You went and started your own company. I remember talking to you about it and where you've brought it. I mean, four exits. And I know you said they're not huge, but you're buying thirty million dollar deals. You've done it. I mean, I remember you talking to me about it before I did my deal. So didn't really, you know, I was robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. And 
Um, it's, uh, I mean, we're always doing that in some respect. You're always trying to, uh, you know, hit this month's numbers and all that, but, um, it's amazing what you've done. And, and what the only advice I have just being a little older is don't go chase the next guy, you know, like do your thing. Uh, that's like, when I see people get in trouble, it's when they go chase the next guy. I'm saying, even when you make your exits, like everyone's like, Oh, that person has that, you know, that Ferrari. It's like doesn't matter you know it's like you enjoy like what you do with your dad your experiences your friends like that's what it's freaking about that's what's that's what's so fun like honestly the day i met you hanging out at where we met at that pool hanging out there with like a bunch of the guys that's fun you know just chilling and so and th- doing this was fun learning more about you i mean i had no idea you were selling door to door for a day working at merrill six months no sales like I always just thought, honestly, I just always thought you were a badass. And we're all, we all, we all have that. We're all like, you know, I mean, an outsider always best. No one remembers, like, I make calls for six months and no sales. But that is what makes you successful now. That is the, that is the gold that people don't realize. Like, that stuff you did then makes you what you are today because you appreciate that much more and you realize how lucky you are to be able to learn this stuff. And I love the respect you pay to your previous boss. I mean, you said that, that, company changed your life and that's awesome yeah so thank you for coming on the raz report i know we went longer than i was supposed to but this you've got a lot to say you're the best thank you so much thank you